0: Well, we are continuing a sermon series titled Delighting in Our Dependence, and it's based off Dr. Kelly Capick's book, You're Only Human. And we're in our last few weeks of the series. We're actually in chapter eight this week, which is titled, Why Doesn't God Just Instantly Change Me? Uh, I was out in the hall before um, the service started. Matt Guzzi came over and said, I think your standard intro for this sermon series every week should just be, I didn't like this chapter this week. But surprisingly, I actually liked the chapter this week, and I think it's very, very appropriate for all of us, given what we've been doing over the last couple of weeks, because we've been making New Year's resolutions, resolutions to work more or work less or drink more or not, probably not drink more, drink less or exercise more. Save more, give more money away, use the daily planner, spend more time with our kids, spend more time with our friends, get married or improve our marriage, and the list goes on and on and on and on. But at the end of the day, these resolutions are just things that we want to change. And this has been going on for thousands of years. I came across an article this week where this gentleman compiled all this information about these resolutions, and he said that actually through his research, he found that annual resolutions date back 4,000 years to Babylon. And then he went on to give some data about the resolutions, our resolutions, successes, or we're going to see lack thereof. He said that 38.5% of all U.S. citizens make New Year's resolutions, 23% of everyone who makes them quits by the end of the first week. He said that 64% quit by the end of January, and only 9% of people that make resolutions keep their resolutions for the entire year. So these are pretty telling stats, and they confirm what we already know to be true, that change is hard. Right, That's the reason that just over a third of all the U.S. populations actually make these New Year's resolutions. And he pointed out that even as people are making them, 43% expect to quit by the end of the first month. They go ahead and cash in their chips. They know they're not going to make it. Change is difficult. And because we live in an instant gratification culture, if we don't see immediate results, we oftentimes become frustrated and we quit. And I'm not just talking about our diets or our eating habits, exercise routines, or even our marriages. But I'm also talking about spiritual matters. And Dr. Kapik talks on this and wrote on this very dynamic in chapter 8 where he pointed this out. He said, With similar impatience, we often wonder why God doesn't just instantly change us. I yell at my kids when I shouldn't. I'm trapped in self-absorption that never seems to end. My endless disordered desires feed my greed and my lust. Sin is not a past issue, but a present struggle for believers. It takes great effort and perseverance not to give up. So we ask when God extends His grace to our broken and needy lives, why doesn't He just immediately free us from our faults? Why are my bad habits not erased and positive virtues not instantly produced? Why doesn't the Almighty also instantly transform us so that we could never fall short again? Now, that is something that I can resonate with. And even as we start in our passage this morning and out of the gate, Paul says this in verse 15, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate, I do. And I read that and I think, yes, that is me. In fact, just a few weeks ago, I had a counseling appointment at the Barnabas Center, and when I saw my counselor, Roger Edwards, he said, is there anything in particular you want to talk about today? And I said, Roger, I need you to change me. I need you to tell me how to change. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, there's so much that I do in my life that I hate doing. I treat people close to me, my own family, in ways that I hate. I hate. I want to be more gracious, but I struggle to do so. I want to forgive better, but I find myself holding grudges. I want to be more gentle, but I can be so harsh. And so when Paul says this in verse 18, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And I know exactly what he's talking about. And my guess is, you do too. Because are there things in your life that you want to do but can't? Are there things in your life that you don't do that you wish you could do? Do you have habits and sin patterns that you just can't shake, but you would really like to? Are there spiritual disciplines in your life like praying, reading your Bible more, being more gracious, loving, and forgiving, but you just can't seem to force yourself to do it? Of course The answer is yes, because if it was true for Paul who met Jesus personally, right, who wrote the majority of the New Testament and was the greatest evangelist our world has ever known, then the same would be true for us. But why? Why is change so hard? Why is it so frustrating? Well, scripture tells us that it's actually part of this huge plan, And it was a plan that was set in motion long ago. Let's see what Paul says about this in Romans 8. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption redemption of our bodies. Paul is telling us that we and all of creation have been subjected to futility and frustration by God himself. God did it to us. And nothing is off limits not even the good things, not even our attempts to change things about ourselves for the better. And he did it in hope, we're told, that we would be set free from sin, redeemed out of bondage, and given freedom to long for the redemption of our world and our bodies and for everything sad to become untrue. God subjected us to these very things so that we would long for heaven so that we would long for him, the only one who can actually bring about change in our lives. And so because of that, we can know that we're going to feel this tension of frustration all of our lives until the redemption of our bodies. Now, you may hear that, and you may think, well, that just sounds cruel. You know, why would God do that to us? Because on some level, it sounds like God is some cruel, cosmic prankster who has set us up for failure over and over again just to let him down yet again. And Dr. Kapik writes on on this, and he recalls when his children were learning to walk, and if you're a parent, you know the drill. He said that when his children were learning to walk, he would stand them up so they could kind of hold on to the side of the couch, and then he would back up several feet away, and then he would put his hands out, smile at them, and say their name, and kind of beckon them to come to him. He said eventually they would get up the courage to try to walk to him, but they wouldn't make it very far. Inevitably, they would make it about a foot or two and they would fall down. And he said sometimes when they fell, they would cry, but other times they just would kind of look up at him to see what his reaction was going to be. And he said, do you think that when they fell, he would shout at them, you idiots, what are you doing? I clearly told you to walk. Why are you disobeying me? He said, of course I wouldn't do that. But instead, he would get up and rush over to to them immediately, lift them up, and offer them assurance and love. He was kind and compassionate to them in their falling. And he said it was not because he was indifferent to them learning to walk, but he said he understood their situation. He knew where they were and where they needed to be eventually, but he also knew the challenges that they were facing in this very thing. And then he writes this. He says, yet when it comes to our Father in heaven, while we would never want to admit it, we often think very poorly of Him. We seem to believe He expects us to be instantly flawless, to never make a mistake, to never fall back or hit the ground. When we do fall, we imagine He is surprised and frustrated, as if the holy, omniscient God were naive or ignorant about the ways sin has so deeply affected us, or the ways we were Uh, excuse me, the ways that we were created with good limitations. When we envision God as a temperamental father, the Christian life seems heavy and burdensome rather than hopeful and promising. But if we better understood our God who abounds with compassion and grace, we might more freely grow in our Christian lives without being crushed by our weaknesses and limits. God in his compassion and grace allows us to fail and fall. And when we do, he isn't shaking his head in disappointment at us, and he's not surprised by our sin. But he meets us with mercy and grace. As Dane Ortland pointed out in a book I don't think I've ever mentioned before, Gentle and Lowly, it's the sin which Jesus came to undo that is most irresistible to him. He says that the very things that make us cringe the most make Jesus hug the hardest. Change is hard, and it will be. As we attempt to change, we will be met with frustration, and at times our attempts will be futile. But we aren't without hope. We aren't left to ourselves. Real change is available. Lasting change is available. Your fate isn't sealed. And if we didn't believe this to be true, then hope's tagline would not be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change. Real change is possible. But at the same time, I'm a realist. And I know for all of us in this room, there are places in our lives that we feel are beyond hope. Some things that will never change. Sins that we can't shake as hard as we try. Destructive patterns and habits that we feel enslaved to. And maybe you feel that for someone else as well. You may be thinking of someone right now that you have little hope for, a friend, a family member, or a coworker. someone that you have begged to change and maybe even begged God to change, and it just feels like they are stuck. It feels like change is impossible. Well, another book that I've mentioned just about every week in this series is Jen Wilkins' book, None Like Him, and she has a chapter in her book called Immutable, and immutable means uh, Unchanging. Which she points out is an attribute of God, that he is immutable. And God tells us this very thing in Malachi 6, where he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are completely unchanging and immutable. But then she points out that we are not. She wrote this. She said, The worst part is that when confronted by my own entrenched sin, my immediate defense is to say, That's just who I am. I can't change. I can't change immutable. And she says, Lie. Lie from the pit of hell, whether uttered in hopelessness or defiance. This statement is a lie. Only one person does not change, and that is God. What greater disavowal of the gospel of grace than to claim that it is capable of changing every sinner's heart but mine? What greater egotism? No one is incapable of change. Remember Paul. Paul was Saul, and Saul was a monster until he met Jesus and he was completely changed. The Apostle Peter was scared, arrogant, and a fighter. And then through the gospel, he was changed and became the leader of Jesus's church. And don't forget about Jonah. Jonah was a runner. Jonah was, Jonah was a racist. Jonah was a nationalist. And even though the end of the book of Jonah, it ends like a bad ending to a bad movie, here's my question for you. Who do you think wrote it? Who do you think told the story? Jonah was so freed by the gospel, he could share with the entire world his sin and shortcomings. And the same can be true for you. The same can be true for your hard heart or your broken heart. The same thing can happen in the hearts of others. And in fact, if you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, not only is change possible, but it's inevitable. Because as the Apostle Paul lovingly reminds us in Philippians, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And the reason why change is guaranteed The reason why it's inevitable is because of one word that Paul says in verse 7, grace. Unmerited favor given to an undeserving recipient by an unobligated giver. In our sins and shortcomings and all the ways that we want to change, need to change, and fail to change, Jesus Christ will finish His work in you. It's His work. It's not your work. Change is possible, and in Jesus it is inevitable, and that is grace. But here's the reality, and it brings us back to the premise of chapter 7. Change is inevitable, but rarely is it instant. In fact, there may be areas of your life that you're frustrated with a lack of change in it, but they may actually be changing, but just not as quickly as you think they should. In the book of Galatians, there's the kind of famous passage on the fruit of the Spirit And where Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and he goes on. And he sets them over against the acts of the sinful nature, acts of sinful nature versus the fruit of the Spirit. An act happens in a second. It's instant. Fruit does not. For fruit to grow, it's slow and at times unnoticeable. It's like if you have kids watching your children grow. You don't notice them growing every day when they're right in front of your face, but then you look at a picture from a year ago and you're shocked with how much they've grown. And the fruit of the Spirit is the same way. For instance, you may say, well, I'm not loving, I need to change this area of my life, but are you more loving now than you were in the past? Are you more loving now than you were five years ago? Are you kinder than you were in years past? Can you look at ways in your life that you're actually growing more patient? Because again if you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, then change is guaranteed. Not instant change, but change nonetheless. And don't miss this. This is probably my favorite little nuance in our passage this morning from Romans 7. Let's look again at verses 18 and 19. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Paul gives us two really wonderful words in this passage to show us that we are actually changing. Desire and want. Because if you weren't growing and changing spiritually, then you wouldn't care. There's, Paul says that there's things that he wants to do, but he's unable at one point in his life, he would not have cared about that. He also says that there's things that he desires to stop doing. He does not want to do it anymore. At one point, he, wouldn't, he would not have had that desire. He would not have wanted that to change about him. I know for me personally, there's things in my life that I would like to change that at one time I didn't really care about. I've shared this before, especially recently, that I have been so struck with how poor I am at repenting. In the past, I would have thought that it would have shown weakness to repent, or I was too prideful to ever do it, but now my pride does still at times get in my way from repenting well, but I do want to repent well. I desire to repent well, and that is growth, that is change, and that is grace. As Dane Ortland writes in his book, How Does God Change Us? He says, we are complicated sinners, Sometimes we take two steps forward and three steps back. We need time. Be patient with yourself. A sense of urgency, yes, but not a sense of hurry. Overnight transformations are the exception, not the norm. Slow change is still real change. But the question before us this morning is why? That's the question we're asking. Why doesn't God instantly change us? Why is the majority of change in our life coming at us in a slow pace? Why won't he just fix us instantly? And here's the answer. 1 John 4 tells us that God is love. And if you have loved anyone or anything in your life, you will know that love is inefficient and that at times it's very slow. In the 1960s, a Japanese theologian wrote a book called Three Mile-an-Hour God, and he wrote in it that on average, humans walk at a pace of three miles per hour. And he said, because we were created in the image of God, we can know that God keeps the same pace. And this is what he writes. He says, God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed. It's an inner speed. It's a spiritual speed. It's a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It is slow, yet it is lord over all other speeds, since it is the speed of love. It goes on in the depth of our life, whether we notice it or not, whether we are currently hit by a storm or not, at three miles an hour. It is the speed we walk, and therefore, it is the speed the love of God walks." You know, God does not only love the product of his creation, but like an artist, he likes the process as well. Don't forget about the creation account. It's clear all throughout scripture that God can do anything he wants in an instant through the power of his word or just through sheer willpower. But in creation, he took his time. He took six days and he pronounced it good every time. And then think about when Adam and Eve sinned. He could have just killed them and started all over, right? Or he could have snapped his fingers like Thanos and just undid everything that they did. Or he could have instantly, in a moment, sent Jesus into the Garden of Eden and had him die for their sins and take care of it. But he didn't. He waited thousands of years. And a lot of bad and good things happened in those years and will still happen until he returns. He is a three-mile-an-hour God who values a relationship With us and love far more than efficiency. And keep in mind, because we are created in his image, we have to have the same perspective, which we don't particularly like. But as the quote on the front of our bulletin so profoundly points out to us, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you could miss it. As I mentioned earlier, loving anyone, including ourselves, is very inefficient. And that is the point. Possibly the most unloving thing we can do is if someone comes to us and they're really struggling and for us to try to instantly fix their problem. I was just talking to a friend this week who's in the midst of a tragedy and she said that in the middle of it that people are coming to her and giving her this well-intentioned but really bad advice telling her it's time to move on, that she needs to leave town or she needs to read certain books or do certain things and these things will fix her. But she said in trying to fix her, she feels that people are completely missing her and that the attempts of a quick fix are very unloving. She told me that instead of offering advice, I wish people would just say to me, this is a tragedy. I'm so sorry. I love you and I'm not going anywhere. Now, here's the thing. Those words... Wouldn't fix anything, but for her, it's the most loving thing that anyone could do. And so, as we close, I want to ask this question How do we change? The very question that I asked Roger Edwards, my counselor. How can we have change in our life? If it's possible, if it's inevitable, how can we bring it about? Is there anything we can do? And the Apostle Paul says yes. And he actually tells us how we can do it. And so, let's look again at the end of our passage, starting in verse 24 where he writes this. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve serve the law of sin. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Paul actually gives us a blueprint for change right here. And he tells us some steps of how to bring about change in our life. And the first thing that he tells us that we need to do is we need to grieve the sin and shortcomings that we have in our life. Like Paul says, wretched man or woman that I am. Don't excuse your sin. Don't minimize your sin. Don't just say, well, that's my personality, like Jen Wilkin pointed out. Or don't say, well, that's just my Enneagram type but call a sin a sin. In the book of James, we're told that if we are guilty of breaking one of God's commands, then we are guilty of breaking them all. And what that means is that if we were left to ourselves, all of us would be as bad off as possible in the sight of God. But we don't stop there because the next thing you do is recognize that you can't deliver yourself from your body of death. Step one in AA is to admit that you are powerless over your addiction and we have to admit the same thing. That we are powerless over our sins and shortcomings. The things that we need to change in our lives and there's nothing we can do about it and so we need to be rescued. We need to look to our rescuer. Recognize that if you are in a relationship with Jesus that he has delivered you from your body of death. We need to recognize our sins and shortcomings, the things that we need to change in our life. We need to recognize that they are so evil that our forgiveness required the death of God, but He loves you so much that He was delighted to do it. So first, grieve your sin. Second, recognize that you are powerless over it. Third, give thanks to Jesus for delivering you out of it. And then fourth, here's some of the most beautiful words in all of scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for you. There is none. All of God's wrath was poured out on his son on the cross. There is none left for you. He was condemned the condemnation that we deserved, he was condemned for you, and we need to be regular, regularly reminded of this because we forget it every day. And that's why we come to do communion. That's why we regularly come to this table. It's a reminder of that reality. It's a place to remember what Jesus did for you through a physical and tangible reminder of bread and wine. But don't miss this, this is a place to be changed. Communion is a means of God's grace. It's a place to experience the grace of Jesus in a profound way. And as Dr. Tim Keller loves to remind us, grace changes everything. Everything. It can change you. It can change me. It can change even the hardest of hearts. And so who is this table for? This is for people who need to change, but it's for people who want to change. It's for people who do not like the things they do, and they wish they could live differently. They don't do the things they truly desire to do, but you know that ultimately that doesn't affect your standing before God because you know that Jesus Christ, in his death, delivered you from your body of death if you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, come and by faith experience his grace in a fresh way. Now, if that's not you, don't violate your conscience by doing, you, doing something you don't believe in. If you think real change is not possible, if you think all of this is hogwash and you don't need anyone to deliver yourself, if you think that you are capable of making this life work, and that you have the ability to change yourself, I would tell you, you don't really understand the gospel. Because the gospel is not self-improvement. So keep your seat, stay where you are, but don't stay too long. Because God wants you with him for all of eternity. He traveled across space and time to come for you. So instead of taking this meal, there are some prayers on the back of your bulletin to guide you, to pray through, and to think through, and to ask some questions. But come back Because this church is a safe place to explore if this is a faith worth having. We are told that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he blessed it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you, take and eat. And in the same manner after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood that was poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sin, take and drink. So it's our practice here at Hope to come up and to receive the elements together and then to take them back to our seats, and then we'll take them at the same time. So um, we found it easier for everyone to come towards the middle of the aisle to receive the elements and then go out and back to your seats. Uh, And then once everyone has been served, we can take communion together. Um, The inner eight cups are wine and everything else is grape juice. And if you would like a gluten-free option for your bread, they're in the pre-packaged cup. And so let me pray for us, and then if those of you that are going to help serve communion would come down. Heavenly Father, thank you that um, you aren't just like some watchmaker who makes a watch, winds it up, and then gets rid of it. Um, But you are actively and intimately involved in our lives and You love us right where we are, but you love us too much to let us remain where we are. And so you change us. You work in our lives. You began a good work in us and you will carry it to completion, as the author of Hebrews tells us that not only did you write our faith, not only are you the author of our faith, but you will complete it and you will perfect it in our lives. And so, Father, I pray that now as we come to this table through this sacrament of communion, that Um, It would be a means of grace in our lives to know you better, to change us, to change our hearts, to change our lives, and to change others. Thank you for giving us this gift, and I pray that you would take this ordinary bread and wine and set it aside for your extraordinary use. In your name I pray. Amen.